Hello, I'm Somi Aryan. I'm the founder of the Think Tank for Women in Business and Technology and the FemPeak platform with the mission of raising women's socioeconomic status. If you could go back in time and change just one thing in your past, what would you change? Well, if I could go back to my childhood and change just one thing, it would have been to learn math and physics. As a philosopher, I sometimes feel handicapped when I can't explain my perceptions in words, but I feel there is math behind them. That's why I'm trying to teach myself as much as I possibly can. Our guest on today's podcast is someone who is very special to me. Professor Sarah Seeger is an astronomer and planetary scientist at MIT. I recently read her amazing book, The Smallest Lights in the Universe, where she combines her life story with an explanation of science and her search for life on other planets. I absolutely love the book and I can't quite describe how happy I was when Sarah agreed to join me on this podcast. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Professor Sarah Seeger. Before you started what you're doing now, what were you doing before? I've been running my uh, marketing agency for five years, uh, and I worked with companies like Steinway, you know, Steinway Pianos. Um, so they're, they're like our biggest client, Bentley, uh, so a lot of luxury brands. Uh, and I made a documentary uh, called The Millennial Disruption, which was about how uh, technology is changing the business landscape. Uh, and that documentary won several awards and just really launched my career. And then I got a, uh, yeah, and then I got, thank you. And then I got approached by uh, a publisher in the UK, Kogan Page, and they asked me if I wanted to write a book about the future of work for young, uh, for young professionals to explain how AI and technology is changing the future of work. And when I was writing the book, I realized that majority of um, my references were men, you know, and, uh, and I thought, and I could see how technology could be even more detrimental to women's uh, careers, uh, you know, because a lot of jobs that women do are more on the repetitive side. So uh, I could see that it could be actually more difficult, more challenging to women. I, I really need to do something to encourage women to get into science, technology, you know, STEM fields. And of course, you know, growing up in, in Iran, but I came to the UK when I was 23 in 2005. I didn't have any of the opportunities that people have in the West, but I still managed to completely turn my life around. So I worked for, when I was in Iran, I worked for United Nations and European embassies. And then that allowed me to save money and bring it here and pay for my own education. Here, I studied political science and philosophy of science and technology. I went into media, I became a filmmaker, did pretty well in media, and then I started my own company in 2015 when I uh, became a British citizen after 11 years. Did you have to give up your Iranian citizenship? Iran doesn't recognize do a double citizenship. So yes, technically, yes. So And I can't go back to Iran anyway because of the political... Uh, because I worked here, I worked for a TV company that it's kind of like if I go back to Iran, it's similar to, I don't know if you're, uh, if you know about the story of this female um, uh, you know, filmmaker who, is, who was working for BBC Persian and he went back, she went back to Iran and she's now in jail. Yeah, so, I've read about that. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So I would be in a similar position. I can't really go back anymore. And I haven't seen my family for 15 years. 
Well, that's um, right. Yeah, and they can't come here. But I'm not very close to them. So, um, so interesting. It was so interesting reading your story yeah. because you're, you talk about your mother and your relationship with your mother and your father. My relationship with my mother is very similar in the sense that we're not very close, but I also am not close to my father either. So most of my family doesn't talk to me. I, and in some cases, I don't even know what I did wrong. Or like, I know what I did, but I don't think it's grounds for rejecting me, you know? Maybe you are on the Asperger's spectrum. It's possible. I think. Yeah, I think so. I a think lot so. Of, I mean, um, right, yeah. A lot of that causes a lot of conflict, actually. And you don't always know about it until many years later. Yeah, I mean, I always knew I was labeled as ADHD. But actually, when I really like something, I can focus on it. Like, I super focus. So it's either... Very few people can have so much success in such disparate areas. And it has a lot yeah. to do with focus. And Yeah, yeah I mean, if, if I show you a picture of where I was born and brought up, you would never believe that I'm now sitting in London in my own home, you know, that I bought, you know, and I'm not even 40 yet. And I and I'm talking to somebody in MIT who I, you know, like, it's like, like, it's just like, how did I make that happen? My, nobody in my parents, in, in my family spoke English. Nobody had ever traveled abroad. Do you know the key to your success or do you not know? Extreme focus, extreme focus. Like, you know, I just so badly wanted to change, not just my destiny, but just, I just had this extreme drive, which sounded like when I was reading your story and I can put some of this because it's being recorded when I was reading your story I could I could relate to so much like you know when you were going canoeing you know that that drive for like I'm just gonna go on my own and I'm just gonna go and travel right and see what's out there yeah and have confidence that you have the skills to deal with whatever comes your way which is a bit naive naive I think in a way but that naivety is good sometimes you know, in a way, like it's a little bit like a kitten that is too afraid, that is not afraid of, of fire. I would say that uh, it's a balancing act between the naivety, but being self-aware enough to know that you are being naive. I don't call it naivety. I think it's more like a childlike spirit that you maintain. Yes, I think so. So uh, let me go back to the to the first question that I had for you, which, um, sure. you know, I sent you some questions, but that was just a, a, a rough idea. But I wanted to ask you, because I have this sense, I often feel like I owe it not just to myself to succeed, but to other people who may never get the opportunity. In some ways, yes, I worked very hard, but I've also been lucky. I've met the right people, you know, that have helped me in so many different points of my life. And there's a there's this sense in me that I'm like, there, maybe there are other people, not maybe, there must be other people who work very hard, but maybe they don't get those opportunities. But on the other hand, I've got this other sense that if you really want it and you work hard enough, you will make it happen. Part of me feels like there are people, you know, who maybe are in, say, now in a camp in Syria, you know, that may never get the opportunity to even entertain thinking about the bigger picture of the universe and why we're here and what is this, uh, this life because they are in war. You know, I grew up during the Iran-Iraq war. The first six years of my life, it was during war. And I remember sirens and we had to go, you know, down to the shelter, you know, and I, I managed to get myself out of that situation eventually. My question to you was like, do you feel that 
you owe it not just to yourself, but to other people, especially to other women, to succeed. I do feel that way very strongly. But I also feel that all of us who have succeeded, we have to give something back. And it's whether it's just helping people, you know, improve their self-esteem or their confidence or trying their best in whatever situation they're in to take care of themselves, for women to look out for themselves, to make the best of, of even what could be a terrible situation. Yes, yes, definitely. The reason why I say that, because there was a moment in your book where you mentioned that you were really seriously thinking of giving up. And when I was reading that, well, listening, I was re- listening to that part of the book, I was like, oh no, I can't believe like, I can't believe that you were thinking that. So it must have been a very difficult point, right? That to think all that work. Okay, I've got to think about that for a second. Um, sure. You know, the thing about is I, no matter how hard my past is, I try my best to shed it, to leave it behind. Yes. So oddly enough, it's really hard for me now, like in the moment we're here together, to remember how tough it was. It's um, tough to kind of go back there. But yes, it's, life isn't always easy. And I don't know if, if giving up is always necessarily a bad thing. Surely you gave something up to do what you're doing now, and you're even more successful than you were before. So it's not always throwing something away forever. It may be just putting something aside to regroup and eventually start something new. Yes, absolutely. I always think of life in terms of transition, a lot of transitions. So you're... Uh, absolutely, I've had to give up so many things, even relationship somebody that has been extremely dear to me that I've had to make a decision between career and you know and relationship to me this is not a career this is a calling and I feel like that's how you feel about what you are doing right to look for life most of the time let me go back to that group of widows that were your friends when uh, you were going through that difficult time and you mentioned you were having these conversations with them they were your friends but you weren't really discussing your work. and You weren't discussing your search for life in other planets and the work that you're doing uh, you know, at MIT. So can you talk a little bit about, in, in your own words, you know, and for people who, I really want people to go and read your book because I think it was so inspiring. And I, I just want you to maybe talk from your own words a little bit about that experience. Weren't you surprised that they didn't ask you questions? So I love my work and I have this image of the stars behind me. Some of you will recognize the constellation Orion with the belt and the the dagger. And I love the stars. And it's so amazing that we can use equations, physics and math to understand the stars and planets and galaxies in the universe. But when I go out to interact with people who don't work in, in science, They're not engineers or physicists or astrophysicists or chemists. It's a very awkward conversation. (laughs) So if I just bumped into you at a social event and I said, hi, hi, what do you do? And you asked me what I work on. It's a very awkward topic. And a lot, oftentimes uh, the conversation just stops dead because people just, their brains can't handle meeting an astrophysicist who perhaps doesn't match their expectations of what it should be. So when I first met the widows, I was actually hoping that they didn't ask me what I do, actually. I was just sort of hoping I could just be kind of one of the crowd for a little while. At that time, obviously, you, you really needed that. But at the same time, I just wonder, 
do you have a sense that maybe in general, because you did mention in one of your videos, which I watched, you said that you're often the first, the only woman in the room in your work environment. So do you feel like there is generally speaking lesser sense of curiosity in girls and women about the universe? Or is it that it's not being encouraged to, for them to go out and educate? In the, why, is, why is there... Why are there fewer women astrophysicists? Right, well, just let me wrap up about the widows. The widows, we had other problems, like bigger problems than our work. And since I was the only person working as well, it just wasn't you know, really a topic that came up at first. But later, they all knew what I worked on, and they visited my office at MIT and everything. So this problem you're asking about women and girls and why there aren't more in science and engineering, it's a huge, huge, multi-faceted problem. We don't know all the issues. But if you've ever, I don't know if, if you, um, I don't interact with, you know, little children that much anymore. But when mine were little, I did. And, you know, children, I'm sure you were one of these, are so curious. They ask questions yeah. nonstop about the world around them. And that's girls or boys or whatever. So that curiosity is always there. I think for girls, though, we're really trained by society. And of course, it depends on your culture, right, and which country you grew up in, on how girls are subdued. And in some cultures, it's like far more, more obvious than others. My father had a common-law wife for quite a long time, Chinese. And she was constantly getting angry with me because she thought I talked back to my father. <laughs> but it was to me just like normal conversation. Like if he picked on me about something, he was very critical. You know, I was too fat or I was too thin or my hair, I hadn't changed my hairstyle my entire life or whatever he was upset with. Like I would say, look, that's not a thing. And she just was constantly, like I could see her world uh, was, was very, very, very different. For being a female, she wasn't allowed to talk back to any males in her family. So I feel there's a lot of different things. But even here in, in North America, too often, even, even now, we, I wouldn't expect this in the year 2020, 2021, but I do hear stories of girls in high school science. And, you know, the teachers are still saying, you know, no, I don't think you can be a scientist. I think there's a lot of different things. And there's one more really important issue to touch on. And that is self-esteem and confidence. And, you know, for whatever reason, girls, more so than boys, lose self-esteem in the high school ages, actually. And that is a real blow to any, any internal desire people have to, to succeed or to pursue a topic that they love. That's definitely true. And it was my experience at school, too. I have been telling everybody around me, all my staff team, you know, my friends, that I have this interview today, I was like, I was, and I told everybody I feel really starstruck because to me, like this, this conversation with an astrophysicist from MIT, this is like me meeting Michael Jackson if I was, you know, <laughs> Michael Jackson. Okay. And, I can, <laughs> and I can tell you why, you know, when I was um, 13, which is like the age, like, like you know, you're going through pre puberty, I had the worst experience of my life where my science teacher that I admired, you know, and I was like secretly wishing she was my mom. I was like, oh, I wish she was my mom. Like, she's so cool. And she, she was like quite modern. And, you know, in Iran, they had to wear hijab. But I could see a little bit of her hair and it was blonde. And I could see that like she dyes her hair and she had like, you know, green eyes. And, it, uh, and I knew that she traveled abroad. So I knew she spoke English and I was teaching myself English. And I so wanted her to notice me. And 
I just, but I wasn't very good at math and, you know, in general, I wasn't very good at school. It was so funny because I loved reading science books. So I would happily like sit there and read Isaac Asimov and, you know, like, or, or science fiction books, you know, a lot of, but, but the way that it was taught at school, I just couldn't connect with it. One day she asked me some questions in front of everybody else, you know, she uh, took me to the board and I couldn't answer them. And she said, um, that she, she called my mom to school and my mom was so angry. My mom was like a little bit, she was, she was a very difficult person. So she was, she always got angry really quickly. So what she, my mom, she slapped me in front of that teacher and my headmistress and other students. And then she spat into my face. Wow. That's shocking. I just couldn't. I didn't, like my brain stopped functioning. I just, you know, as a child growing up, I used to always cry because my parents always beat me up and uh, they were like really, really difficult parents. But that day was the first day that for the first time I didn't cry because I was so angry, so angry that I just, it was beyond imagination. And I went to the schoolyard, sat in the backyard and I was like in a state of shock. And then eventually when I saw that teacher again, she told me, your mom is crazy. And I said, I beg you not to call her to school. I told you she would kill me. And she said, your mom is crazy and you will never amount to anything. And to this day, you know, to this day, I think to myself, I remember her surname. I couldn't remember her first name. A few days ago, actually, I was as late as a few days ago, I was thinking, I wish I could remember her, her first name. I wish I could find her and tell her what I'm doing. Right. I was going to ask you if she knows what you're doing now. It's very hard to recover from that level of trauma that you have received during your childhood. It's true. And, and you talk about self-confidence and, and self-esteem. This is an extreme version of it. But I think many girls at school, and, and that's why I wanted to ask you, do you think that women and men or girls and boys learn math and science differently? I don't know, actually. And I would say most likely they do not learn differently. But I believe that each individual child or person learns differently. You just explained how you couldn't learn the way they taught you at school. But I'm sure if you were a child and came to me and I was your teacher, I could invent ways for you to learn. Like one of my children could not spell. And the teachers tried everything. And his spelling was absolutely atrocious. And then, guess what? He had a game on his phone. He was, I want to say he was about 10 years old. And I let him have a phone starting when he was, actually, I can't remember. He might've been 12, 11 or 12, but he got his phone and he played a game called Words with Friends. That's like Scrabble, but it's on your phone. And because I considered that an educational game, there was no time limit on the amount of time he could spend on his phone. And he had some friends, family friends he played with. And he ended up memorizing all the words because he, wanted, he was very competitive and he was very good with logic because as you know, Scrabble is more of a logic game than a word game. After doing that for about six months, guess what? He was an excellent speller and has been ever since. That's amazing. Now, I didn't do that on purpose, right? But clearly, whatever they did in his traditional school, there was no possible way that they could teach him or that he could learn from their style. So I think everybody learns differently. And sadly, very few people learn the way through our traditional education system. You know, the teacher working things on the blackboard and rambling on. Even I couldn't learn that way. I just used what the teacher put on the board. I knew I had to go home and, and figure all that out. The only reason why I agree with you that it's more about the individuals. And actually, I interviewed on our panel at the conference, we had a, a professor of economics, and she said the differences within the sexes 
is a lot more than between the sexes, which was quite interesting. She was like, you know, people usually say men like that, women like that, but actually there's more variability within each sex. That I get, but, but when I look at the fact that we have more male ma mathematicians or that, or at least that they are more recognized, I usually say that's why they call it history and not her story. <laughs> You know, like it could be that it's just the way that history is written. I don't know. I have to believe that a large part of it is cultural. And a lot of it has to do with self-esteem and what people, society, you know, thinks is the right career choices. Like we see nurses, for example, are almost all women, but we have male nurses too. And they're highly needed. You know, I've had, as you know, from my book, close family members who, who have died and we had a male nurse for one of them and it was fantastic. So why aren't there more male nurses? It's a great job. We need people to take care of each other. And there's, there's a role for, for men to, to do that. I always hate it when I go to the hospital and see male doctor, female nurse, you know, because there's no reason that it shouldn't be uh, more, more mixed up. That's right. Actually, one of our panelists that I interviewed, she's a plastic surgeon, and she said, oftentimes when I go into the patient's room, the family, they look at me and they, they think that I'm, I'm the nurse. So they, they don't realize that I'm the surgeon. <laughs> yeah, so, so it seems to be the case. Here in Boston, we do have a lot of female doctors. We had a top surgeon. My son once broke his ankle very badly and had to get pins. And it was a female surgeon who was absolutely the best in the world for, for pediatrics. Yeah. Also, I did want you to know that at MIT, we, it's definitely dominated by men, but we have a good number of women, women physicists, women chemists, women mathematicians. So Of course, of course. But the problem of the double burden of family and working unpaid at home, you know, you were very successful at having, I, I do want to ask you some scientific questions. I'm going to come to them, but I want to get some of these out of the way because they're, they're fascinating. You were very successful at finding a partner that supported you at the very um, early stages of your career when it was crucial for you to be able to do that. Do you think there was like something about the way that you communicated that could it be that we can teach women to communicate better their needs? I think that's a small part of it, but I think it goes down to the heart and core of the other person. If you have two very ambitious people who want nothing but to succeed and run their own empire, that's very hard to make work with the family as well. <laughs> so Typically, you need one partner. It, this is just my personal opinion, but it always helps to have one person who's just simply not ambitious, but someone who at the same time won't be jealous of your ambition and success. And that is something I knew, perhaps not articulated like I just said, and that actually is really key. Mm -hmm. Because you need the person to support you. If the person is working full time, that's fine, but you may need to move to another city, or there might be a couple months where you need to work around the clock. And someone's got to be there to, to, whether or not you have children, you know, to pick up the pieces and just to keep everything, everything moving along. But one little tip, I could go away and think about this and write it all down. Here's a tip that's really important, okay? It needs to be um, a man who loves his mother, who adores his mother. And the mother, if the mother's a strong figure, could still have been a stay-at-home mom, but like a very strong personality. In everything I've observed with myself and others, that is like the right man. Very interesting, very interesting point. That's, that's like the, the hallmark of a man who's going to be supportive. Who's going to be supportive of a strong woman. Mm -hmm. You know how you talked about the, the fact that one person has to be the ambitious one and the other one maybe less ambitious. In a metaphoric way, is it a little bit like the sun and the earth? 
like like one person has to go out and burn, you know, to light up the universe. I think so. In my world, we see a lot of couples who don't survive because when the woman starts succeeding more than the man, you know, if they're working in the same field approximately, if one's an engineer, one's a physicist, or maybe one's a mathematician, one's a chemist, when the woman starts succeeding, the man, uh, man's ego can't handle it. And it often doesn't work out. So typically what you'll see is in the couple, I think it's really by design that the man is better, better at what they do than the woman. And that uh, difference amplifies with time. As the man gets a great job and moves, the woman has to be the trailing spouse and doesn't get as good of a job just so she can stay together and support her spouse. And so over time, that gap ends up widening, harming the woman in the end. I feel like that is a problem on the bigger scale of humanity. And I'll share my thoughts on why I think that, and I'd, I'd be interested to hear what you think. So the way I look at it, when we look at, especially now in this time where technology is accelerating, the let's say going into the next phase of human evolution as we are merging with technology right the way i look at it is like the world is run by 10 corporations and these 10 corporations five in in the west and five in the east right in the west we have uh facebook amazon uh, google apple microsoft and in the east we have alibaba baidu xiaomi huawei and um tencent these 10 corporations all founded and run by men. So there's not a female perspective in the room where the future of humanity is being decided from a biological perspective and from a biological evolutionary, evolutionary biology perspective. Yes, it's true that, okay, one of them had to be, one of the two sexes had to be the supportive one and, and look after the kids. And by design, because women give birth, they are usually the one that end up uh, fulfilling that role so it's a bit of an anomaly if the other way around but but that now for the bigger picture of humanity we are now in a very uneven place and, and this means that even when you look at you know your field of like looking for life on our other planets most of that work is being done by men so not having a female perspective, it does make a difference. And it's the same thing, not having a female perspective when the future of humanity is being decided as we look at nanotechnology, biotechnology, you know, uh, artificial intelligence, even the algorithms. How do you feel about that? Do you think that we need to find a way to accelerate? Do we need to correct that course of history? Well, it would, sure, it would really be important for women to have a voice. What are your thoughts on this? I mean, have you you thought about it? And yes. what are your thoughts? What are your yeah, thoughts? I, I wake up every morning thinking about it. That's why I started this movement. Right. Okay, my thoughts are a little bit out there. Uh, you know, maybe a little bit, some people may not necessarily like it, but, you know, on, a, on an evolutionary, from an evolutionary perspective, my thoughts are, you know, I, I often ask myself, is the fact that women give birth and is the fact that women are the, the one that has to go through is because it's not just giving birth. It's not like, you know, your life is like, okay, that one year you, it's the fact that you also have to deal with period and menopause and, you know, all the different things that go with that. Right. I'm somebody who really suffers from, you know, it's not even a PMS, it's like PMD, like really suffers from two, three days a month where I really, really suffer. And that impacts my productivity. And, and I know that this is, this is the case. It has been, and there are throughout history, before there was like 
the kind of sanitation that we have now, girls couldn't go to school because during that time because they were too worried about you know being ridiculed and and it still is happening in some parts of the world so i question myself for example the period is this a feature or a bug this role for women the fact that there's been just one side of this human equation that has had to deal with all of that is that a feature or a bug and i'm inclined to think that it's probably a bug or at least all the side effects that goes with it is a bug right but don't you think today because we do have more control over our environment, we can find ways to help women work around everything. Exactly. And, I, and that's why I started this movement. So part of this, what we are doing here, so far we've got 12,500 people who have joined this. And uh, my goal is by the end of this year to get to 100,000. And then we are, get, we are asking people, we are creating these groups of finding out who is interested in investing, who is interested, who is already a... Um, a sophisticated investor and who is an entrepreneur bringing in solution as, uh, you know for women creating solution for women there are many many solutions that there are many ways in which for example i use this ring that tracks all of my you know bodily movements and and you know like my temperature everything so i know what's happening in my body so, and it tells me how i'm sleeping so so it, i can track my cycle so uh, there are so many things and i can take the right supplementation yes there are ways but if you think about how slowly this is moving in comparison to how quickly, you know, algorithms are changing, is there enough time for us to catch up? Yeah, it's definitely a problem. I don't have any answers for this one. I think the very, the very least that people like yourself can do is to inspire, which you are doing through the book that you've written and the work that you're doing, to inspire other women to really get galvanized, you know, because when I look at social media, all of the the minds uh, of the little girls and then the you know young women, all the women, everybody is just being hijacked by images of things that shouldn't really matter. You know, like this is the kind of conversation that should be there, that should be highlighted. But no, they will be showing you somebody in a gym training, you know, their butt. <laughs> you know, and if people in MIT don't have a solution. <laughs> I don't know who will. Well, you will. You will find the solution. Because we at MIT, we're in our own little world solving the problems in our discipline. And by harnessing energy of others around you, I have confidence that you will do, do the job. Oh, thank you. But you know, the, the way I'm seeing it is like, in some ways, may, I'm grateful maybe that I wasn't very good at math or at school. Because if I was, I, I would definitely want to be ending up in MIT, but because I wasn't, now I'm in a place where I'm thinking, well, what I'm going to do is I'm going to build a big enough business that is going to generate so much money that I can then fund women going into that. Like I could like create a fellowship that would be like specifically for women to be able to go into these fields, to find those solutions, right? I'm going to ask you a few questions about life. You know, you're looking for life. This, this is, is, to correct me if I'm wrong, this is the premise of your work, right? You're looking for life elsewhere. Signs right? of life elsewhere, correct. Signs of life elsewhere. Uh, wh why is it important to you? Or why, why is it important that we look for life elsewhere when we are on a planet? And, and you know, I'm 100% I'm with you. I'm just, like, mm -hmm. I'm just, I just want to hear your perspective and I want other people to hear your perspective. But when we are allegedly destroying our own planet? Well, 
you know, for millennia, for thousands of years and longer, probably, we've wondered what is out there? What is beyond earth? We've wondered why are we here? And each culture and religion has a different answer for that. In astronomy, in science, in physics, we're trying to address all of these heavy questions by looking outwards and trying to understand how planets form, how can life start on earth? Are there signs of life? Is there life elsewhere? And we hope that by searching for answers that we can bring something back to our, our purpose here on earth. You know, another answer is we, we pursue science as pure exploration. And many times throughout history, we discover big things that end up helping humanity. When you want to think of antibiotics, for example, we didn't say, oh, I need to find something that can cure a lot of common illnesses. No, no, actually. It started out with just experiments in biology from a couple hundred years ago. Now in astronomy, we don't always, well, we rarely, let's say, find big solutions to problems. But when you ask yourself, do you use GPS to get around your city? Probably. It's another example of something that pure science and pure engineering brought to us. So those are really the two big reasons. You know, it's just sheer curiosity, the desire to explore and to try to bring answers to why are we here? How did our planet and our life come to be? And it's also just the pure science that sometimes once in a while yields a giant practical return. We are destroying our own earth. There's no question we're, we're overpopulated. There's a lot of problems here on our planet, but we're still searching and exploring, you know, despite, despite all that. Do you see a solution to that? When I look at the fact that we are overpopulated, I've decided not to have children because I felt like if I did, there's no way I could have done all the things I want to do. And part of it is because I come from Iran and I came to the UK in 2005. So I knew that I'm behind, like, you know, like basically when I was 23, I was just trying to get out of the country and a forced marriage to my cousin, you know? Yes, um, while Zuckerberg was 23, he was like, you know, in a very, very different, different position, right? So as a woman who comes from that kind of traditional background, I knew that if I wanted to have children, I don't have the luxury of being able, like I've only become a British citizen in 2015. So my life didn't start until then. There's so many things I couldn't do. I couldn't start a business. I couldn't have done so many things I'm doing. So I decided not to have children for that reason. And, and I, I do think that I would like to adopt at some point. But I, I often feel like when we look at the fact that the world is overpopulated, maybe having fewer children will give women an opportunity to go into and pursue like I have done, you know. There is a joy in figuring things out and making things. I haven't had children, but I can kind of feel like it's similar to the joy of, you know, like, like this project, what I'm doing, this is my child. Yeah, it's a tough one because for some of us, the, bio, the biological drive to have children, that happened to me, it just outweighed any logic <laughs> because I'm with you on logic. We have too many people, we want to pursue our own work type, you know, our own work, which is like our child, but it's, I'd like to think there's a way around it. It may be just wishful thinking that I waited mm -hmm. to, it was admittedly not everyone can do this, but I waited till I had a job that paid enough money so I could hire a nanny who could help. And that was, wow, amazing having this wonderful woman, her name's Marta, who could come over, you know, she would arrive, say, just 15 minutes before I had to go to work and I, she was so great with the baby. I, 
I, I, a lot of people don't think women should work and have children actually. So I was breastfeeding my baby and ready to go back to work part-time. But the problem was he needed to be able to take a bottle and he refused because the baby loves the mom. They don't want to take a bottle. And then this wonderful nanny who my neighbor's nanny, who became a good friend of mine recommended, um, the baby took the bottle. And I so clearly recall, I went to work, came home because I worked near my home for lunch. I looked at my baby and he was comfortably in her like giant arms. And he looked at me and then he just went back to being really comfortable. And I was like, wow, this is, this is, I can get used to this. Now it's tough to us women like yourself, you know, you've, your family may not be the ones who can support you, but you know, in other families, I've seen the parents, you know, move in for a while. I've seen this, especially, um, yeah, one, one person I know, his wife's Asian and her parents moved in and helped take care of their three little kids and both parents can work. So I like to think that there is a solution, but I know that it's not true typically. You know, I have another friend who has to take care of her own two children. Her husband's not supportive in any way, really. And then she's also taking care of her ailing parents who are very sick as well. And so she can't, she really doesn't have time because it's like she has two sets of kids, her parents and her, her actual children. So I like to think there's a way around, but it's true that children are very consuming, joyfully so. And also, you know, if anything goes wrong, then it just upends your entire life, basically. That's a very difficult one because, you know, you could be spending all of that time and effort putting into this bundle of joy, as people call it. And then, you know, when the child has a problem, it's your problem for the rest of your life. But we'd like to see a world where women wouldn't have to choose. You know, they could do it all, but it's hard to do it all, all the time. You know, there's the phrase, you can have it all. And there's the phrase, there's the phrase, you can have it all, just not all the time. My wonderful children now are age 15 and 17, two boys, and I gave them a lot of room to be independent, and they are very independent. And now it's sad but happy. I have my time back. You know, I have my life back because the teenagers, they don't always, well, let's say teenage boys don't always want to be with their mom, and they, they can pretty much do what, what they need to do now to, to get by, you know, to do their sports, see their friends, go to school. Although now during the coronavirus, everything is... Um, Things aren't happening like they used to. We still have sports and school two days a week. The rest is online, but it's uh, definitely took a lot of time in the early years, but now it's, I won't say totally back to normal, but I definitely can pursue my work aggressively. That's good. You've got such a long way to go. You know, I'm rooting for you winning the Nobel Prize. (laughs) So so, um, speaking of prize i wanted to ask you a philosophical question but but tell me about that macarthur prize was it right that you uh, the fellowship what is the um, ratio of men and women who win that it's about equal actually i think a, a lot of places um yeah i think it's about equal and it spans many disciplines mm-hmm. artists typically receive it you know writers painters there are scientists engineers it's really open to anything that's amazing i wanted to ask you about because we were talking about life right and and one of the first memories of my childhood. I remember I was like four years old. I used to look at myself in the mirror and think, wow, this is, ah, I can't, I couldn't understand that why I could feel like touch. And I, and I looked at my eyes and I was like, where did this come from? You know, and like the veins and like, I was like, where was I before I came here? And I used to ask this question, like I would drive myself nuts thinking, who am I? Like, what is this? Like, why do I have feeling? Why can I touch? Why, why can I see? I guess the, the real question was like, what is life? 
that's why I studied philosophy because I also like I wasn't good enough at math, so I went and studied philosophy. And I think philosophy is like like the alternative for people who think math, but in a but with language. You know, for many many years, I still couldn't find a a good enough answer to what is life. I consider myself a Nietzschean. I don't know if you're familiar with philosophy or Nietzsche, but he's uh, he's like a, a really uh, interesting philosopher. But within the scientific uh, environment. I really like that little book, What is Life by Schrodinger, where he talks about, I don't know, I'm probably paraphrasing in a philosophical way, but you can correct me if I'm wrong. But if it's like basically saying that the universe has a tendency to disorder, you know, and, and entropy, and then there are these bundles of particles that randomly gather together and, and organize themselves to try and overcome that disorder, and that is life. If that is life, then it's my understanding that when that happens, when, when that life takes shape, these little bundles, these particles that have come together to overcome the, the entropy, they then create more entropy because, you know, kind of like what we are doing with our earth, right? Because it's a little bit like just brushing, sweeping stuff under your bed, you know, or, or like taking your rubbish and putting it out. But actually, you haven't really, you've only just removed it from your environment to make it more livable for you, right? So if that is the definition of life, and my first question is, do you agree with that definition of life? And if that is the definition of life, it makes sense to think that that is probably happening everywhere in the universe. And from that perspective, it makes sense to me that there must be life in other planets. Yes, yes. I like how you summarize it. Very nice. I do like that. I, I agree with it mostly. It's, we do think that life should be everywhere, but scientists do want to understand the exact steps that happened here on Earth so that they can have some confidence that life can also happen elsewhere in terms of just the fundamental molecules that got together and the chemical processes that happened to make life how, how it is on Earth. If fundamentally life is essentially overcoming entropy, then there must be many other ways of doing it. So maybe that our carbon-based life is not the only form of life. Well, that we're not sure about because carbon is a very versatile molecule. And we haven't really found any other... Carbon is a very... Carbon, when strung together, makes very versatile molecules. And so we haven't found any other atoms that really can, on their own, make a backbone as good as carbon can. So Sarah, I know that you're very busy uh, and this has been a great conversation. I have a feeling that we are going to talk many, many times <laughs> and I just have a feeling that, uh, you know, we are, this conversation uh, will continue. So I wanted to thank you for being here today. Is there anything that you can say, like any word of wisdom for other women watching you, a professor at MIT that's looking for life, signs of life? in other planets, you know, is there something you can say that will inspire them to think, yes, like I, I want to do something really meaningful with my life? Yes, yes. I think the key is to find something that you love doing that you're also very good at and to listen to your inner voice and try to block all the, the negativity around you in favor of what your heart is telling you to do. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you so much, Sarah. Thank you so much. It was wonderful meeting you. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Professor Sarah Seeger. 
I highly recommend her book. It's called The Smallest Lights in the Universe. Be sure to read it. It will touch your soul as it did for me. If you enjoy these conversations, please subscribe on your favorite podcast channel. And don't forget to rate and review and connect with me on LinkedIn, Twitter, or Instagram.